The poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, sometimes known as the Order of Solomon's Temple, but more commonly today known as the Knights Templar, have been a strange attractor for mystical groups and conspiracy theories for over 900 years. Anybody who claims to be anybody in the world of secrets tries to tie themselves in some way to this holy military order. But just who were these warrior priests who gave away all of their money to the order, never carried cash, rode two to a horse, and also maybe engaged in weird rituals like kissing each other's backsides and having long conversations with a talking head named Baphomet? We'll go all the way back to the beginnings and trace the Knights Templar through the ages. This is one of the biggins. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Fellowship of the Temple. In 1099, after the successful conclusion of the First Crusade, the city of Jerusalem was finally in Christian hands for the first time in 461 years. Naturally, the European Christians wanted to go on pilgrimage there as well as elsewhere in the Holy Land to see where Jesus bopped around and so on. But as so often happens, after a military takeover in an area, there was a power vacuum and there was lots of chaos and lots of crime and lots of people with, shall we say, an entrepreneurial bent taking advantage of the situation. This means that there was a lot of robbers and ne'er-do-wells on the road waiting to rob and even kill unprotected travelers. Somewhere between 1104 and 1107, Hugh, Count of Champagne, went on one such pilgrimage, returning again somewhere between 1114 and 1116. It's thought on this second trip, he was accompanied by another Hugh, a guy named Hugh de Pine, who remained behind after the Count returned to France. Sometime in late 1119 or maybe early 1120, Hugh de Pine went to see King Baldwin II of Jerusalem with eight male relatives, relatives either by blood or by marriage, including two of his brothers, to see if the king would let them form an order of knights. Bernard of Clairvaux supported the idea, and while Baldwin was thinking about it, de Pine and his kin camped out in what was left of the old Temple of Solomon. Baldwin granted them the right to form an order. This would be the third holy order of its type. And since they'd been staying at the temple anyway, they were known as the Knights of the Temple or the Knights Templar. The nine founding members swore an oath of poverty and focused mainly on protecting pilgrims to the Holy Land. Their HQ was on the Temple Mount in the at the time Christian-controlled Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site in Islam. This is where Muhammad was transported to in a dream and then rode a horse to heaven to have a chat with Allah. 
Much has been made over the centuries about how maybe this was pretty unusual to house these guys in the temple and that Hugh DePine and his gang must have known something secret, something special to be given the charter to form a military order. But right after the First Crusade, two orders of knights were created in the Holy Land and elsewhere in Europe there were some holy orders. The Order of the Holy Sepulchre, set up by Godfrey of Bouillon in Jerusalem around, around 1103 with permission from King Baldwin, and the Knights Hospitalier, also known as the Knights of Malta, were set up around 1113, also in Jerusalem, mainly tending to the sick and the injured. This is where the word hospital comes from. So the Templars were the third group to be given the thumbs up and okay from a crusader king. Now, some say that they had brought excavation equipment with them as if they knew that they'd be housed in the temple, and they dug around under the old temple of Solomon for something, and they found something. What was that something? Maybe the Holy Grail, some say. This aura of mystery and secret knowledge is often used to try and explain the Templar's rather quick rise to power and fame. Hugh DePine had gone on tour around Europe, drumming up support starting in 1127, pretty early off. Right off the bat, they gained patronage and support of the Cistercian Order under the leadership of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who supported them being created in the first place. He wrote glowing letters about how awesome they were, and he was instrumental in getting the Templars officially endorsed by the Church in 1129. They became a very popular charity throughout Christian Europe. Although the Knights Templar took a vow of poverty, having no personal possessions of any kind and living communally, the upper classes gave them all kinds of things, gold, jewels, money, control of businesses, and land. The rich also sent some of their high-born sons to join the order and help protect the Holy Land from non-Christian incursions. And when someone joined the Templars, they had to donate all of their wealth and worldly goods to the order. Hugh DePine, the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar, died in 1136. In 1139, Pope Innocent II said that the Templars did not have to follow any local laws in lands in which they were located. This meant they could go anywhere they liked without hindrance, and also that they didn't have to pay anyone any taxes. After battles with Muslims, they also got to keep anything that they plundered, no matter how valuable the items were. The papal bull also allowed them to construct their own churches, bury their own dead on that consecrated ground in whatever manner they saw fit, and conduct masses. So now they weren't just warriors, but they were also priests. It further allowed them to collect taxes for themselves on any Templar-held land. And finally, the Templars were made solely answerable to the Pope and no one else. While well, all of this gave them enormous power and authority. And so they were off and running. Their numbers swelled. They ended up with tons of wealth, more pouring in all the time. They got to keep all the money they got. They had more power and more autonomy than probably any other group in all of Christendom, except for possibly the papacy. Growth, Growth hacking. hacking. While the Templars were a holy order, their main thing was fighting, and they did it very, very well. Most Templars were illiterate, so they weren't really that much into the whole scholarship thing. They took oaths of poverty, of chastity, piety, and obedience. This is very much like the same process for monks, and like monks, they also honored feast days throughout the year, and they said prayers said at certain times of the day. They especially venerated the Virgin Mary. 
Templars were not allowed to swear or gamble or get drunk. They lived communally, shared everything, eating meals together, sleeping in multi-bed dormitories. When they ate, they ate in complete silence and they were only allowed to eat three times a week so as not to become gluttons. They grew beards to cover their faces, preventing vanity. Sometimes two men rode per one horse to save money. And when somebody joined the Templars, it was usually for life. Templar horses were armored, and they were trained to fight in battle. As fighters, the Templars were fearless, since they thought that if they were martyred in a holy cause's name, that was about as good as it got, immortal soul-wise. And they built castles all over Europe. The international organization was highly structured, with the whole thing overseen by a Grand Master, who, once he ascended to that job, held that position for life. Most Templars were knights who were trained in warfare. They were also advisors to rulers, and they wore long white coats with a big red cross on them. Lower class members were called sergeants. They wore black or brown, and they acted as servants when they weren't also engaged in fighting. And when things got real, they could be enlisted as soldiers. The third class were the chaplains who wore green, and they're the ones who conducted religious services and did other spiritual work as needed. They also were literate. They wrote letters and did administrative work. For all three categories of knights, the uniform was super important. If they weren't wearing their correct uniform, they were not allowed to eat or drink anything. Because they were such a large organization and spread out in so many lands and such good fighters, they could be relied on to transport valuables like gold all across Christendom. They actually created a sort of proto-checking system. So let's say that Joe wants to travel to Paris with a bunch of money and jewels because he's going to set up a business there or whatever, for whatever reason. Rather than take all that stuff with him, which would make him an easy target for brigands, he would go to a special round Templar repository near where he lived and he would deposit all of his money and valuables there. The Templars would give him a piece of paper with the value of what he'd deposited. So when he travels, he just has his piece of paper. Then, when he gets to Paris, he presents that paper at another Templar depository and is allowed to take out money and goods of equal value to what he deposited. Templars would also oversee the wealth of nobles who were off participating in what would end up being quite a few crusades in the Holy Land. After all, the Templars had taken an oath of poverty, so certainly they weren't going to steal anything. Before and during the Fifth Crusade, which was like 1213 to 1221, Popes Innocent III and Honorius II used the Templars as tax collectors throughout Christian Europe to help fund that crusade. During the Seventh Crusade, the leader King Louis IX of France ended up sort of being bankrupt, and the Templars basically supplied his armies with food, weapons, and ships. When he got captured in 1250, they ransomed him, raising 800,000 Byzants in a single day. That was enough to pay for all the food supplies and transportation for 44,000 soldiers for two years. That was a lot of money, literally a king's ransom. And some people think this historical event is the origin of the phrase, a king's ransom. Over time, the Templars had so much wealth that noble families would sometimes borrow from them. And the Templars could charge interest. This was forbidden for most Christians, but the Templars could get away with it. This, of course, increased their wealth even more. At their height, they had literally hundreds of castles, churches, farms, 
businesses all over Europe. They own their own fleet of ships. They ran an international, very successful import-export business and basically owned the entire island of Cyprus for a while where they had relocated their headquarters after being defeated along with all of the other Christians at the siege of Acre in 1291. In the city of London, two previously Templar-owned areas still retain their old names, the Temple Tube Station and Temple Bar Gate. In fact, that whole area was known as Temple London and had four inns, two of which were also Templar Courts. Rivalries and Accusations Not everybody loved the Templars, though. The Knights of St. John Malta had a long-standing rivalry with them, as did the Teutonic Knights, who'd been formed in Jerusalem in 1192. Basically, they were all competing for the same land, businesses, and influence. Some ambitious and or paranoid nobles also looked askance at this ridiculously powerful organization. Not only did they have wealth to rival even the richest kings, but they also had a trained army of probably the fiercest warriors in all of Europe who answered to no one but themselves. Yes, in theory, they answered to the Pope, but you know. And they could cross borders as they saw fit. And despite the Templars being present in the Holy Land, the Crusader kingdoms fell anyway and Christians basically got booted out by the Muslims around 1300 or so. However, the Templars were still plenty rich and they started lobbying to get their own kingdom, just like the Teutonic Knights had in Prussia. And yeah, it probably went a little bit to the heads at least some of the members of the order. A common saying at the time was, quote, to drink like a Templar, suggesting some of them not only drank alcohol, which they weren't supposed to, but drank to excess. King Philip IV of France really didn't like them. He thought they were just too big for their steel-plated britches. And his lands had had some financial difficulties, and he had wanted the Templars to pony up some money, which they wouldn't do. Previously, he had borrowed rather heavily from them, and that debt was coming due soon. Plus, Philip had this idea. If the Templars were out of the way, and he was the cause of them going away, then he could kind of fill that power vacuum and basically become the greatest defender of Christianity, founding what he would have called a royal theocracy in which he and his line would be even more powerful than the Pope. So, around 1304-1305, rumors started circulating that the Templars were involved in blasphemous and immoral practices. All sorts of crazy things were put on them. That they rode two to a horse, not to save money, but because they were homosexuals. They kissed the base of the spine of initiates during initiation ceremonies, as well as kissing the navel and the mouth, more homosexual stuff. They denied Christ three times and spat and stamped upon the cross. They worshipped cats. And they also worshipped a talking head named Baphomet that they had dug up somewhere in the Holy Land. So here were these freaks pretending to be warriors for Christ, but actually they were the biggest heretics of them all. I mean, these are pretty classic rumors for the time, except for the talking head bit. That's pretty unique. In fact, a lot of these accusations that Philip made were almost identical to accusations that Philip had made previously against Pope Boniface VIII when he was trying essentially to nationalize papal wealth in France so he could go and invade England, and Boniface told him no. Philip worked really, really hard on Boniface's successor, Pope Clement V, and finally the Pope just gave in to the unrelenting pressure and rumor-mongering coming from France. Talk about fake news being successful. On Friday, October 13, 1307, Philip issued an arrest order for all Templars in France. 
It is thought that this might be why Friday the 13th is still seen today as a day of bad luck. However, the Templars had a lot of fans, and some of the actual arrests were delayed by days or even weeks in some places, and as a result, most of the Templars escaped. Those few that were caught and rounded up were tortured. In addition to the previous accusations mentioned, more things were added to the official charges, like that they urinated on the cross, when they conducted mass, they never actually consecrated the host, and, of course, that they routinely engaged in lustful homosexual activities. This talking head named Baphomet was never found, but it still made it into the official charges, and it now, at this point, it had morphed into having three faces in an obscene satire of the Holy Trinity. Only around 140 or so Templars were captured in France, and they were tortured. 103 admitted under torture, and yes, they did kiss the base of initiate's spine. 105 said yes, they denied Christ during initiation, and 123 said that they had spit upon the cross. Again, though, these are all confessions under torture, and we all know that people will say anything to make the pain stop. Anyway, these charges and the confessions all made it into the public. People started demanding that something be done about these freaky gay Satan worshippers. Pope Clement finally issued a papal bull in November condemning the Templar order as a whole and telling rulers throughout all of Europe to arrest them and confiscate their wealth. More pressure from Philip on the Pope resulted in Gregory officially suppressing the order in 1312, ordering it completely and totally dissolved. A good deal of Templar land was given to the Knights of St. John, who were happy to accept the gift, or just simply confiscated by local kings. Knights who had confessed were sometimes, quote, rehabilitated and assigned to a monastery, and those that refused to confess even under torture were subjected to yet another trial. One of those holdouts was the French Grand Master Jacques de Molay. Of course, they were all found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. De Molay complained about this, saying that this was all nonsense, and then things heated up, so to speak. Probably March 11, 1314, though some people think it was the 18th, he and three other high-ranking Templars were brought out in front of Notre Dame in Paris, and the charges were read again. De Molay was asked to confirm them. He said any confessions that had been wrought under torture were false, and that the charges themselves were false. King Philip was furious and immediately ordered that they would be burned alive as heretics at sunset. There is still a plaque at the spot today in Paris. Interestingly, 500 years later, during the French Revolution, when King Louis XVI was beheaded, a man reportedly jumped up on the scaffold and said, Jacques de Molay, you have been avenged. This is the sort of thing that makes people believe that the Templars still existed in some form or another in secret all those centuries. Recently, a document known as the Chinon Parchment was found in the Vatican archives that clearly shows that Pope Clement V subjected Templars to a trial and found them innocent of heresy. But even so, King Philip of France was pretty influential and pretty persistent, and so the Pope called for the Templars to be disbanded anyway. If he hadn't, Philip probably would have started causing some serious trouble for the Popes, and hey, who needs that kind of headache? Wheat, Wheat from the from Chaff, the chaff. So an organization that's possibly the largest, richest group anywhere in Europe gets taken down by the medieval equivalent of fake news, and all their money and other wealth is redistributed by those who are spreading the rumors, you know, mainly to themselves. And it really all just comes down to one guy, King Philip IV of France, 
who then, no surprise, moved into the power vacuum. As I mentioned before, many rulers weren't keen on the whole arrest the Templars thing and they dragged their feet for weeks or months, and so most members of the order escaped, scattering to different places, shaving off their rather distinctive beards, and just kind of vanishing into the background. But what about the famed Templar treasure, which Philip was so looking forward to getting his hands on? Well, it was gone, at least the bulk of it was certainly gone. No one except high-ranking Templars knew for sure what they had had, but there were rumors. Lots and lots of gold, jewels, precious metals and stones, and a number of holy relics. Some said the Ark of the Covenant. Others suggested the Shroud of Turin, which modern researchers think might have been the head named Baphomet that they worshipped. And the most persistent one was that they were the keepers of the Holy Grail. In recent years, various tunnels have been found at former Templar sites that the press like to call treasure tunnels, the idea being that maybe the Templars smuggled their goodies out secretly using these tunnels. Remember, they had a whole fleet of ships, so some people think that they used these to disperse the treasure as well as fleeing members far and wide. Some people believe that portions of this treasure helped start the banking boom in Switzerland. Others think that the Nazis found some of the old Templar treasure and that helped them finance the early days of their kickoff for world domination. Others think that discovered Templar funds were used to basically fund New York City or maybe even Rosslyn Chapel in Washington, D.C. There's a 2014 book called The Templar Treasure, an Investigation by Tobias Daniel Wobble that's sort of part historical look at rumors of the treasure and part guidebook for intrepid swords who want to go visit many of the Templar sites and maybe the treasure hoards themselves. Holy Grail, Holy, Grail, Holy, Holy smokes. smokes! The Holy Grail was supposedly one of the Templar treasures, and it was never found, or so some say. There's a place in Spain that claims to have the actual Holy Grail, but... Now, what was the Holy Grail? Well, many thought it was the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, the one in which he transformed his wine into his blood. Others thought it was a cup that caught the fluid that poured out of him while he was dying on the cross and he'd been pierced by the Roman soldier's spear. Some people thought the Holy Grail was actually both of these. It was the same cup. Anyway, it had mystical or magical powers. A lot of the association of the Grail with the Templars comes from an Austrian pseudo-historian named Josef von Hama Pugstall, who wrote in 1818 about the Templars really being all about mystical knowledge and preserving special holy relics that had special powers. For him, the Grail was not an actual cup, but just a symbol of secret knowledge that they had found in the East and brought to Europe. Later writers connected the Templar Grail legends to the Cathars, a mystical Christian sect in southern France who lived communally with no personal possessions, hmm, levied no taxes, treated men and women as equals, discouraged marriage, thought the world was wicked and suicide was a perfectly acceptable response to the pressures of living, and had some interesting interpretations of church canon, a lot of which actually came from Persian ideas. They also believed that angels who had been expelled from heaven were walking around on earth disguised as humans, and that there were two gods of equal strength, one good, one evil, who constantly fought for supremacy, and that when you died, your soul was reincarnated into a new body. Not traditional church mythology. So the church called for the Albigensian crusade against them, which lasted from 1209 to 1229, 
but persecutions of the Cathars continued into the middle of the 13th century and even beyond. Now, at the beginning of the 20th century, a French novelist, Josephine Peladon, wrote that the Templars for sure had the grail and they had smuggled it out of Castle Montségur, which is about 80 kilometers southwest of Carcassonne, when that church fell to church forces in 1244 during the persecution of the Cathars. A German medievalist and Nazi SS officer named Otto Hahn wrote a series of books in the 1930s about the grail being a symbol of the pure Germanic religion that Christians have been trying to destroy for centuries and the key to a great mystical truth. Ron's writings certainly piqued the interest of both Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler himself and kicked off a search in the Carcassonne area for the Grail and the secret of the Templars. And then three British writers cobbled together a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, published in 1982, which speculated that the Holy Grail was actually the womb of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had been married to Jesus and that the wine-slash-blood it contained was actually a direct descendant of the Messiah himself. This descendant, of course, had children of his own, and the bloodline continued through the centuries and still exists today, watched over by a shadowy organization called the Priory of Sion. The Priory's aims are to eventually reveal that there is in fact a descendant of Jesus alive today to bring back knight orders, unite secular Europe and the church under a single ruler who is of the holy bloodline, and eventually rule Europe as a single country with a single political party, ushering in an age of peace and prosperity and making available the mystical secrets the Templars had been secretly keeping all these centuries. It's a great story for sure, and one which was certainly used as inspiration for a 1993 book by Margaret Starbird called The Woman with the Alabaster Jar. Starbird would go on to write several more books about Mary Magdalene and the Grail, as well as the best-selling 2003 book by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Paranormal documentary filmmaker Bruce Burgess also took this up in 2008 with his documentary titled Bloodline. Michael Bajent, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, wrote a follow-up book in 1986 called The Messianic Legacy, and then Bajent and Lee went on to write The Temple and the Lodge two years after that, which claimed to have found proof that Scottish Rite Freemasonry was actually started by Templars who had fled continental Europe after the arrest order was issued in the 14th century. Everybody Everybody traces traces to the Templars. Templars. Any group or organization that wasn't 100% on board with church doctrine claimed they were carrying on the secret traditions of the Templars. The idea was that they had found certain secrets, maybe even relics, while in the Near East and been keeping them hidden until the world could be prepared for them. This probably all comes from the outlandish claims King Philip made when he had them arrested, but there is some evidence that the Templars had at least a few offbeat rituals and ideas. The Freemasons have long claimed they were the inheritors of Templar knowledge, and this really took off in the 18th century when French Freemasons tried to increase enrollment by claiming that their traditions went all the way back to the Crusades and the Templars themselves. They were building on ideas propagated in the 16th century by Henry Agrippa in his book De Occulta Philosophia, which boldly said that the Templars kept secret, hidden, mystical knowledge. A spiritual movement of hermetic Christians, which meant they were mystical Christians who tried to find the deeper truths behind surface church doctrine. This group of hermetic Christians in the 17th century called the Rosicrucians 
also claimed they were the holders and inheritors of the Templar secrets. Like everyone who says this, they said the secrets were too powerful to be shared willy-nilly with an unprepared world, and the goal of their organization was to slowly mold society into a place where the secrets could be revealed without causing total chaos. Adam Weishaupt, when he started the Illuminati in Bavaria in 1776, used to tell prospective and new members that his group had a lineage all the way back to the Templars and their secrets, a claim he later had to recant when he was challenged and could provide zero proof. All of these groups were probably just using the Templar name to sound interesting and increase their memberships, kind of like a marketing campaign and recruitment drive. There was one organization that actually seems to have a legitimate claim on being a direct descendant of the Templars, the Ordem dos Cavalleros de Cristo, or Orders of the Knight of Christ, was set up in the town of Santarai, Portugal in 1318. Rumors of the time said the King of Portugal had just renamed the Templars and started it all again, but actually it looks like the Templars in that area vanished when the arrest order came out, avoided capture, and then just reoccupied their old headquarters and changed the name themselves, and the Portuguese authorities just didn't really care. This order was secularized in 1789, right around the time of the French Revolution, and then formally disbanded in 1910 when the Portuguese monarchy fell, only to come back again in 1917 when the Republic of Portugal decided to reinstate some of the old orders as orders of merit as a reward for being so helpful to the Portuguese state over the centuries. So the military order of the Knights of Christ still exists in Portugal today. Many, Many mysteries. mysteries. So what exactly were these hidden mystical secrets the Templars had supposedly found and kept hidden from general knowledge? Well, that sort of depends on who you talk to. Here are just a few. They had discovered the secrets of alchemy. They had discovered the secret of immortality. They discovered the new world. They hid the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. They knew Jesus had a baby and were keeping tabs on the bloodline. They learned advanced meditation techniques that allowed humans to expand their consciousness and communicate directly with God. They had learned that what the church calls God is actually the adversary and that it is the duty of humans to become God in order to defeat the adversary. They learned that humans had come from another planet. They found out that there are inhabitants on other planets all throughout the galaxy. They had discovered advanced alien technology like stargates that allowed them to transform matter and communicate with aliens and travel interplanetarily. Or that they learned of the existence of multiple dimensions filled with quadrillions of races and beings. How much of this is fanciful? Probably all of it. Despite all the wild claims made by all the different people and groups over the centuries, no one has actually offered any proof whatsoever. Templars, Templars today. today. As I said, this is, this is a great story. And today, people are still fascinated by the Templars. I mean, let's face it, they're mysterious, they're cool. Dan Brown's book and the 2006 film version of it have certainly helped get the idea of the Templars back into the public imagination. Sometimes it's all Funny games like Brown's book or the Nicolas Cage 2004 action vehicle National Treasure or the Assassin's Creed game franchise which pits a secret order of assassins against the evil Templars in a millennia-long war for control of secret technology left behind by an advanced race of beings who created the human race. This is great stuff and pretty harmless, but some of it is not so harmless. For example, there's the Knights Templar UK, which is a right-wing extremist group 
who also sell merchandise. There's Sion Nagal, or Seed of the Gal, a Scottish proto-fascist group with decidedly racist overtones formed in 1978 and who claim to have the secrets of the Templars and, and to be carrying on their work. They also think that Scotland was founded as a Templar state and the EU is an attempt to further weaken Scotland's influence. There's the Knights Templar Europe, a group dedicated to taking political control of all of Europe and driving out all Muslims forever, and who are responsible for at least 76 deaths in Norway during a series of attacks involving guns and bombs that happened in 2011. At least that's what Anders Breivik claimed in his sprawling 1,500-page manifesto, though many of the police who finally captured him think he was crazy and just made the whole thing up as a justification for his very personal racist terrorism. Also, prison psychologists have diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia and judged him criminally insane. There are actually a lot of Templar groups out there on the web today. It seems that some folks on the far-right anti-Muslim wagon have just decided that really what the Templars were all about is they hated Islam. They think, well, I hate Islam. So then they take on the Templar symbolism and try to legitimize their own beliefs and give it all a bit of cachet. Despite all the rumors and claims, the Templars were certainly real enough and they continue to hold a fascination for many modern people. Sometimes they're used to try and give a sense of history and legitimacy to new ideas. Sometimes they're used as an excuse in the ongoing culture wars. Most often, though, they're used as fuel for stories because their tale is a wild and entertaining one. And what is a conspiracy theory really at its heart but a great story? Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.